So this is actually kind of neat, especially for a tech podcast, because Dave and I, I think, are coming at this from like completely opposite ends. Mm. Like you came up in literature, right? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, that's and I, I came up in 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 CS, and now we're doing like very similar mm. jobs. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, let's get started. Okay. Today, I speak with founders from two game development studios. They share their successes and failures in this unforgiving industry. This was a long interview, so it's going to be split over two episodes. All right, let's get back into it. Here's episode 14 of the Toronto Tech Podcast. I'm joined today by Dave Proctor, director at Mighty L and producer at Vertex Pop, and Stephen Smith, co-founder at Lightning Rod Games since 2013. Guys, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, at least. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so I'm not going to speak for you. That's important. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I didn't speak because I'm so used to listening to podcasts and not being on them. So yeah, I was I've just been, like, oh, it's the start. I've been cr- <laughs> I, oh, this is where they do the preamble. Ooh. Yeah. When do we do the, the Casper mattress ad? That's a, you can it's cut that halfway. out. That's probably not who we're sponsored by. <laughs> I think we're Andy up here. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, it was started here. Casper is the intruder. It's true. We, we don't I thought like Casper them. was a Canadian one. Uh, Andy is the Canadian one. It was bought, bought by Sleep Country Canada not long ago good for, for a whole really? bunch of money. I have an Andy. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very good. This, uh, that was the end. <laughs> there we go. So tell me, I want to get started. There's so many things I want to talk to you guys about. Great. But let's start at the top. Tell me about the project you're working on right now. Deep. All right. Uh, so I'm working on a game called The Big Con. It is uh, an adventure game about being a young woman con artist in the mid-1990s. Um, it's just about solving puzzles, figuring out what people want, how you can get it to them, and a lot of, lot of you know, multiple options to, um, to solve your, your, your quandary. So do you pickpocket people? Do you sell them the thing they want? Do you find your way to sneak into a room and find some money? That kind of thing. It's, uh, it's a little bit more up to gotcha. you than most adventure games. Yeah, it's got a nice pop art style. It does. I'm mm-hmm. wearing the shirt right now, which is, oh, which is that. was a total accident. I just grabbed it in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you guys for being here, getting up in the dark, because it, it's been gloomy out there today. It is a grim one. Yeah. Yep, yep. Snow and freezing, freezing rain. And uh, on that note, my <laughs> game is about a long-distance relationship. Hey. Yeah, it takes place in a world of folding paper. You play by folding the world to help the couple navigate. And it's got like a, a nice paper but not paper art aesthetic mm-hmm. yeah it was good. for for both of your games actually I, I had never seen something quite like what was being made a fold apart where the mechanics you know you could tie it to some other games that have existed but not with this kind of storyline no and not exactly the same mechanics no uh, as far as we know no one's done this before i think we're the first actually maybe some people popped up after and we're just like hey did you check out this jam game from this team this year and it was just like oh so we'll be the first commercial <laughs> game right. to do this and definitely the first in 3d that's great uh, that's how you guys started right this was a game jam idea no 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 this was a um this was like a, a random thing that happened over breakfast after gdc one year uh so we were working on a super villain tactics game and uh, it wasn't the most 
innovative title. It was like really beautiful and there were really fun, fun elements to it, but it didn't have like a really good uh, game hook. And we had just been at the experimental gameplay workshop that mm. year at uh, the Game Developers Conference. And all the ideas were just so wild in that because like uh, the experimental gameplay workshop is about new game mechanics from like either unreleased games, non-commercial games, academic experiments, just experiments people are doing in sort of like the indie scene. And it's really, really uh, impressive stuff. And so we were sitting at a, um, we were having breakfast the day after and Mark, who's my co-founder, turns to me and he's like, what's a game mechanic no one's ever done before? which is like a funny question just to toss out at somebody. And I'm just like, I looked around and I think the place was like really kitschy or something like that. And I'm just like folding the world like the back of a mad magazine. And, and then he, I asked him what he wanted to do. And he said, I want to make a game about the long distance relationship I was in. And then we're just like, well, I don't see how those work together. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't no, Can't do it. Doesn't make any sense at all. Months later, he phones me up and he's just like, I've got it. I've got it. And I don't know what he's talking about until he sticks a piece of paper in the webcam. And he's like, there's a guy on the platform on this side. And then he folds the paper over to the back and there's another platform. And he's like, and he can walk off uh-huh. onto the other side. And the, uh, my brain is just like, <laughs> and so we, we just start designing puzzles for that and coming up with different mechanics we can do with paper. And then it turned out that it's a really good analogy for a long distance relationship because you're in two different places uh, because you have to be in a long-distance relationship like work, school, family. Everything would be perfect if you could just put your worlds together. I mean, if you're on two sides of a piece of paper, you're you're very close, you're on the same paper, but you can't exactly reach each other Mm. unless you fold the paper and turn your, like, merge your worlds together. Mm -hmm. And that became, like, our pitch going forward and building a team and getting funding and doing all that. Wow. And this was your co-founder, Mark, and it it sounds like... uh it sounds like this all came together quite quickly, actually, these two different pieces. Uh, well, it was good that it did, because everything that was going on before that was kind of falling apart. So, <laughs> so you were hungry for something. Yes. And when we, when we figured that out, um, we presented that to some mentors we have uh, that were at this incubator called Execution Labs. And when one of them looked at it, they're just like, why are you working on anything else? Wow. That was the moment. Yep. Uh, Dave, tell me a little bit more about the big con. Is it, the way that I've understood it, it was a cross between, so it was a puzzle solver with a little hint of Grand Theft Auto, like doing things you probably shouldn't be doing. I mean, uh, that's, a, that's a fun way to look at it. Um, I love adventure games. Like I grew up playing stuff like Monkey Island and Loom and, and like all the old LucasArts adventure games. Um, and uh, at least Monkey Island, not so much Loom. But at least Monkey Island, like a lot of adventure games are just about being a kind of a crappy person who's, uh, <laughs> who's screwing people over, right? And, yeah. and that's not, uh, it's never thought about in those terms. It's just like I have to inadvertently ruin this person's day so that I can get the key to a door. Um, I also love con artist movies because they're fun. And I mean, like a lot of video games are power fantasies in different ways the power fantasy of the con artist movie is being smarter than someone Mm -hmm. to the point where it is financially beneficial to you. Right. So I wanted to try to make that happen in a, in a game where you, you listen, you, you, you figure out how to, how to sort of like navigate a human (laughs) in, in some way. And, um, and, and it pays off. We we call it a nonviolent crime game. That's the, 
Or at least that's what we used mm. to call it. It's not so much that anymore. I, I feel like that fits the title because there isn't any, at least from the trailers and the content that I've seen, there's no violence, but there is malice. Yeah, there is no, there is no violence in the traditional sense of the word yeah. violence. We can get deeply philosophical and decide what... <laughs> if we talk about psychological... What violence yeah. is in the long term, maybe maybe we can make an argument for that, but then uh, that's no fun. That's not a fun podcast. <laughs> well, we could dive into what made you pivot on that. What do you mean? On that being the tagline, the non-violent oh. crime game. Where, where was the point where you said, this isn't our elevator pitch anymore? I mean... I, I can still use it, but what's more important is the story of our main character. Mm-hmm. So, w- what what is more important to me now is Allie, who you know she has a, a pretty good you know relationship with her mom, and like we wanted to explore this this what it means to be this character and what it means to have this this familial relationship, but also you know like the rest of the narrative is what's a bit more a bit more interesting. Yeah, and I mean, we're still locking down a lot of it, so I'm not going to talk about a heck of a lot of it. But um, yeah, it's it's about being a con artist in the 1990s. That actually has proven to be a more descriptive elevator pitch than a nonviolent crime game. Nonviolent crime game is like a fun little stinger you throw out there, but um, people are like, okay, I get it, you know. And once they get it, I have to stop talking. <laughs> I guess it's it's kind of a nice like. It's almost like a a resurgent sort of topic because we did used to have a lot more sort of like con artist themed movies, late 80s, -hmm. 90s, more so than we have now. Mm -hmm. Like I can't think of, maybe I'm just out of the loop, but yeah, I can't think of a recent like... uh, Big one other than that. Oh, other than financial crimes. I guess those are... Sure, yeah. (laughs) That's that's perennial. That's a bit too soon. Um, (laughs) But like stuff like uh, Ocean's Eleven and like they're heist movies, right? They're they're always there. Um, The score, Matchstick Men, like these are early, Mm -hmm. mid-2000s, really playing into Matchstick Men specifically, playing into like the, the mundanity of being a con artist, which is really interesting, which is like, that'd be like the next game, that'd be the sequel. Um, and then there's a scene in Matchstick Men that, that made me fall in love with the idea where he is teaching his daughter, uh, he being Nicolas Cage, in one of his most understated roles, um, teaching his daughter, Alison Lohman, to do like a, like a hustle. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's like, come on, teach, teach me something. He's like, no, I don't want this for you. Like, I want, like, let's just go get ice cream or whatever. She's like, come on, just one, just one. And so they go and they look at yesterday's lottery numbers and they buy a lottery ticket with those numbers uh, or like three of those numbers, like enough to get like 600 bucks or something like that. Uh, and then they scratch the date mm. on the ticket and biff it up uh, so that it looks like today's date. And then they crumple the ticket and they go to a laundromat and he tells her what to do. We don't see him telling her what to do, but she sort of trips the ticket out of her pocket and gets a woman saying, like, is this yours? And uh, I was like, no, it's not. And they look at it, and they're like, these are the, these are, these are the winning lottery numbers. And the, the sort of, like, pivot in the con is the woman who is the mark is like, well, we got to call this in. And before they call it in, Alice Lemon character is like, you know what? Like, I really got to go. Just take it. Like, it's fine. Like, have a, like, have a happy life, right? And, uh, and the one was like, no, no, like, it's, we, we did this together. 
so I, it's $600, I'm gonna give you $300. And, and you go and I'm gonna call this in right now. Uh, and it's, it's such a like, it's such a deep and personal and like achievable con. Uh, and I, I just, I fell in love with it. And it's so video gamey. Like it's have item, if you have lottery ticket and you know laundromat, you can accomplish this, right? <laughs> so I, I was like, well, there's more than there's more of those things that we that we can have. So that was that was like that that con is always in my head, and like don't be surprised if I if I put it in a game, <laughs> right? Because there's gonna there's a million derivatives of that. Yeah, can, and there's an there's an old movie I can't remember the name of, but it's a pool hustle movie where these two experts go in. Like the this. color of money. Is that, is yep. that the one? That's yeah. Tom Cruise. Tom right? Cruise and Paul Newman. Yeah. 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 Exact same avenue yeah. where you just, you have something and you figure out how to leverage it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and um, we've done a lot of research into conning. Uh, our design director, Jill Murray, um, did a ton to just sort of like figure out what the anatomy of a con is. And, and the, the person that is, is being conned is is always sort of thinking they're the ones ripping you off like there's something yeah you have to sort of save them from themselves they want to be seen in a certain way and there's it's oh it's amazing fascinating yeah that's a I, that's a common tactic it's sort of like marketing too mm-hmm. it's um the idea that you're presenting someone with an opportunity that is going to vanish if yeah. they don't act immediately and act before they can do like really think about things or do proper research or yeah, anything for sure. like that. Mm-hmm. The exploding offer, as it's called. Uh, or as I've heard it called. I want to talk more about what is your roles or what are your responsibilities as co as founders of companies or as directors. What is what does that translate into every day? So on a on a day-to-day basis, um it's sort of like overseeing the work that the rest of the team is doing and making sure that everything stays on course. So art will present their dailies, uh, design will present what they're working on, uh, for programming, the issues that were resolved the day previous and what's coming up the, the current day will, will sort of come up and we'll just sort of like check everything off the list and let everybody go do their thing. Everybody at the company is pretty experienced and they have a lot of uh, free reign. Um, it's a remote company so basically we just work, we meet in the morning, do our sort of like our stand-up and dailies, and then everyone is just free to manage their time. Mm-hmm. That's right. I'm going to come back to that, the, the all-remote company, because I find that it's, it's rare of any company type. But as a game dev studio, I've never heard of one that's all-remote. Really? Planet Moon. There's a couple. There's a couple. Campo Santo oh. was. Oh. Uh, not entirely, but a lot of it. Okay. Yeah. Actually, wait. Planet Moon... Which, which one were the ones that did Ori in the Blind Forest? Was that just Moon Studios? I feel like that's called Moon Studios. Okay, Planet Moon was Giant Citizen Kabuto. Okay, okay. Yeah. good. There you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sonderlust is all remote. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, I mean, also, which uh, I, have some, I have some opinions on. Uh, I, it is not... It is not the management style that is most effective for you, so Stephen, or for me rather. Uh, so Stephen, I'll take your tips where I can get them. Um, I, I prefer to be near people. I feel like I feel like a remote studio is is harder for me personally to to manage. 
I think it's a process and onboarding is way more difficult mm. in a remote studio than it is if you have a fixed location um, because you have to be very careful when you're bringing someone new in because then it, it's kind of just like maybe it feels like abandoning them mm. if you're not spending like a lot of time with them in the beginning on like calls and stuff like that. Uh, you have to make sure that people know it's okay to just call anyone on the team at any time uh, because there's that extra step in reaching out. It stops a lot of people from doing it. Um, we give everybody a, uh, a welcome package when they join, and it's a That's couple lovely. of books. Uh, I think one's called Rework and one's called Remote. Hmm. And uh, Adding these to the list. It's, they're, they're very short, easy reads about uh, working remotely, and it's mostly just to get people used to that idea. Um, our last couple of hires had remote experience already, so they were a little bit uh, faster to onboard than maybe previously. Mm. Do you all do core hours? What's, how does that work? So, it, yeah, it's, it's like core hours, but they tend to be shorter. So yeah. be available between 10 and 3 guaranteed every day. Yeah. Otherwise, break up your work however you want. Yeah. So I've got that. The, the core hours uh, has worked for you. But do you have people across time zones as well? Yes, we do. Uh, so we've done this a couple of times. Uh, the first time we did it was when we were in execution labs uh, doing our first game. Our artist was in Vancouver. And what that generally meant was <laughs> we, we gave them that freedom to, to sort of construct their workday. And then what would happen is I would be up very late working with them through like uh, certain like character design and uh, just a ton of stuff on the art end. Because it, it was a very tight working relationship uh, because we were trying to achieve something very specific that wasn't that artist's natural style. Hmm. And now we have a programmer who's in Victoria, but that's a little bit easier because we're able to sort of touch base during the core hours and, um, it, it's, it hasn't been a problem yet. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's three hour time difference from here to there. So it's not, it's yep. not the biggest deal. Uh, and as a programmer, I guess it, it's easier to be autonomous. Is that a differentiator? I don't know. I wouldn't hmm. say that it's easier. Yeah, it, it seems like it would be the same as for everybody else because you usually block off certain tasks. You go do them. If you get stuck, you seek feedback um, or you get feedback the next day in the meeting. It's, it's the same thing as with art and story, I'd imagine. Yeah. Okay. So no differentiator there. Well, what's, what's been your experience? And the question was my day-to-day is that the, <laughs> yeah, where do we want to go? Remote, or my experience with the re remote work. Well, we've we've gone on some pretty hard tangents here. Wh let's, which one would you? Let's go. Have more let's fun go down the remote remote work hole. Okay. Um, I have a very. I think I'm a pretty good team leader, but I'm I am something I've noticed for myself is that I am better at it face to face. You know, if I don't if I don't have somebody in front of me that's clearly having a hard time, and they can just turn to me and say, "Hey, what, how do, should this be blue?" And then I can be like, no, it's, it's green. And then we've solved the problem versus like, 
having someone disappear for long periods of time, not knowing that they're having this problem, encouraging, and this isn't specifically an art issue, I'm just using blue and green because it's easy, um, and then coming back and being like, okay, well, if you were having difficulties, why didn't we talk about it? Like, that's something that I've always, there's something here that I'm, I'm missing. And, and then there's like, if you don't have core hours, then, then you end up just uh, waiting for someone to respond. And it's, it's very, very challenging. So we've, we've had some conversations about like making uh, ourselves fully available at certain times. Um, but to me, all of that stuff gets cut out if you are in the same room, there's right. just, where you can see that they're struggling rather than wait for them to have to tell you. Yeah. Or like you, you just, you don't have to schedule calls and be ready for those calls and all that stuff. Like here's, here's how I, I work. I have a way of managing my tasks that lets me kind of get stuff that's in my head out of my head mm-hmm. as fast as possible. So if something comes up, and I have to schedule a call to talk about it at 3 p.m., then my next, and it's noon, my next three hours are a little bunged up, right? Like I'm a little bit, well, I'm thinking about that call, and if it's particularly a stressful design issue or something like that, I have to, I'm, I'm, I'm marinating in that versus like, okay, right. we're having a problem, let's go talk about it right now. And, and if, if, you know, if both parties are free, let's clear it off, and, and now it's done, and we don't have to think about it anymore. Um, I think that kind of rhythm changes how you work, um, changes how I work anyways. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, if we, it's also, I mean, more affordable to not have an office, so that's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's a big difference. If we had an office, though, I don't know. Like if we, had, if we had the money for it, I think I would have an office in a heartbeat. So mm. One that's of me. our things, too, was, was attracting people that didn't want that also. So mm. I think if you have an office... And you're adding that commute onto everyone's sure. day. I, I think that takes a toll as well. It might actually, like, I don't know what the ramifications for salary would be on that. Because I know, I don't know, if, if I had to commute, like, a long distance every day, it's, that, that definitely goes into, like, the, the calculus of, like, what my compensation needs to be mm-hmm. for there are a ton of factors here. And I know I think about that. Where is my office located? How long does it take me to get there? Um, is it, if I can't uh, take the subway, do I have to drive? There's a, there's a lot of questions that come up that suddenly factor into the desirability of a company and an offer. Yes, that that's more what I was trying to say is it's about whether or not you want to take that job. So it's like, here's this tiny company. This is what they're offering and work from home is sort of a, um, that is a bonus for a lot mm-hmm. of people, especially the people that we were going after mm-hmm. um, when we were starting the company because we wanted everyone with a little bit more experience because we knew that uh, without that office, it was going to be, it would just be a disaster trying to manage junior people. Yeah, fair. Yeah. Um, there's something that I miss from having an office that I have found in every working environment I've ever been in, which is the the sort of spontaneous joy of being around people like the there are moments in the day when you're working around a bunch of people that have the same passions as you where and I'm not talking about like like the obvious times when everybody riffs and you have to tell them to shut up because you're trying to get some work done um but like what if we had this game idea let's you know what let's take half a day 
and just let's let's do a half day jam together. Let's do let's let's talk about some ideas like for our game specifically. Like like okay, we've got our features are complete. Let's let's riff on some cons ideas. Like uh, and doing that in person is easier spontaneously if you're around the same people than having to schedule that time. And, and like in 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 my opinion, and then like having that sort of you know tinderbox of 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 joy that you can sort of strike up because and also for me sometimes I just need to make people laugh to feel good you know like that's <laughs> the thing that I want to do and uh, and I have that ability um, I think a little easier if I'm next to somebody I do miss that mm-hmm. um, you're absolutely right that that stuff is trickier from remote now for like jamming on game ideas like that stuff coming up spontaneously can be like that, that that's great and that's a lot of fun but sometimes there's just someone on the team that's going to be like oh we're doing this now i'm just gonna i was doing this other thing but okay we're doing we're doing yeah. this now yeah um but you you're right the spontaneous joy thing is is different like you still kind of get that like someone will post on slack or whatever and then some people will chat about what that thing is but it's it's not it's not quite the same yeah Mm -hmm. and back to something you were talking about earlier for like actual development flow uh i spent a lot of time as a tools developer in my career and it is much more difficult to do that remotely because I can't just hover. Show me how you use the thing. Yeah, I can't yeah. hover over someone just when they're doing their actual work. Like I can't just like walk by their desk and look over their shoulder when they're poking at this thing yeah. or hearing that, uh, like yeah. that frustration <laughs> yeah. from across the room and, and then stuff. I have to wait for like a meeting. I have to wait for maybe someone to say something or I have to be really keyed into the work they're doing and being like so why did you do it this way can you show me how you did that and then be really diplomatic a way of trying to figure out it's like are you using the tool like is is the tool not designed properly for for what you need yeah um because at first i was going to say are they using the tool wrong? But my personal philosophy on that sort of thing is, is that they're that never using the tool wrong. Is well, no, is that <laughs> if if they're using the tool wrong, then the tool is probably wrong yeah. because it's not naturally teaching them to use it properly. Yeah. A hammer has a heavy end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, that's what you're saying. That the tool is never wrong if you're using it wrong. Or sorry, the, the users are never using it wrong. Yeah, the tool may need to be adjusted to fit a use case that, uh, you know someone didn't think of yeah um this exact thing like we have we have one team members in in montreal and like building tools was it's very difficult to understand like what the frustrations are unless we were in the tool and even once i was in the tool i was like i'm not experiencing the same problems and i don't you know like Mm -hmm. What's the, yeah, I mean, this is, this is all like, this would be great if we all had billions of dollars and we could just have a giant office and none of this would be a problem. Yeah. If I had time to make the game development equivalent of Clippy, I would. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That'd be cool. Um, This is perfect because one of the things I wanted to talk about was funding. I thought you were going to say Clippy. Clippy. (laughs) (laughs) How did you know? The the Crash Bandicoot of Microsoft Tell me how Clippy has made your games better. (laughs) I I use him for... um, uh, like instructions, uh, if I need to, I, I don't like a lot of the tools are really alive. So 
uh, I haven't been able to keep like active documentation because I was the only programmer on our game mm -hmm. doing uh, gameplay and tools and just everything. Uh, so what I would do was I would take that style of like the, uh, the old uh, art tutorials that you'd see on like DeviantArt where it's just a mm -hmm. giant picture like a giant vertical scroll and saying it's like this step, this step, this step, this step with all kinds of screenshots. Yeah. So at the top of those, some of them I just put clippy and it's like, hey, it looks like you're trying to and then whatever this ah. action is in the in the engine and then it'll just have a bunch of pictures underneath it. That's great. Saying so you it's use like, it as a the, hint to these your are users. The, these are the tool steps. Um, That's great. I So I would like to introduce that stuff into the engine, into the actual environment and not just have it as like posts on Slack. Mm. I do love that in engine documentation. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> now we're now we're getting into the interesting the the list of things that I shouldn't spend money on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the things that are always so tempting, but you know yeah. they're not part of the part of the flow, part yeah. of the process. Sorry, you you didn't want to talk about Clippy. Uh, you wanted to talk about something else. <laughs> I did not expect that Clippy tangent, but it was perfect. I wanted to talk about funding. What's been your guys' experience? How do you go about getting funding? What's your approach? Ta take me through that world. I mean, you can pitch for several years and not get anything. I can I can speak from experience. Um, <laughs> yep. We live in a we live in a good place for for money for games. So, yeah. uh, you know, Ontario Creates is where I do a lot of my major funding with Mighty L with uh, with Vertex Pop as well. Um, you know, and that, that, for those that are listening, that is a, the Interactive Digital Media Fund grant is a 50% match so long as you spend 100% of the budget in Ontario. So it's, mm. it's like an economic growth grant or whatever you would call that. I'm not, I don't politics. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then there's the CMF as well. Um, the Canadian Media Fund. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they are a little more competitive and you have to pay them back. Um, but, I mean, the, the C3P grant exists for the same reason. Um, right. And then there's the experimental grant, but you have to really be doing something super new and manage to convince them that it's super new. And I have no idea how to do that anymore. I've, I've lost all ability. You did though. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got the commercial one because I was like, this is a game. This, I, know to, I know what to do here. And, and actually that's one of the things that makes it difficult to, um, to pitch for private money is uh, the games are, the games are content. Yeah, and so when we were when we were starting back in in 2013, that was that was when that whole shift was starting. So Execution Labs had been set up as a mobile free to play incubator targeting a mid core audience, mm -hmm. and uh, we came into it as like a two person team, just Mark and myself, and we're mm -hmm. like, ah, well, we'll build it as we go. And anyway, so part of that incubator was um, is learning to pitch. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, we're learning to pitch our games, but we're pitching them to like these venture capital firms and the venture capital firms are, I mean, they've invested in our incubator, mm -hmm. which is a service. This is this thing that's supposed to produce, produce content. Yeah. Oof. But it's, it's a service producing the content, which is something they're interested in investing in. But when it comes to the content, it's a, high risk, low reward proposition mm -hmm. for a lot of investors to get into like discrete content games. Because at the, at the service level, like if you're, if I'm an investor in a lab, uh, it's a volume game, right? Like, so at that point they're going to put up 10 games, 
if four of them are hits, you know, or like if what's one a, of them's a hit. if one of them's a hit, we're laughing. You know, the best the best baseball players miss seven of their ten swings, right? So, like that that's fine. They're willing to to lose those those things. I personally have recently bought stocks. And I bought them in one company, and if it tanks, I'm screwed. Uh, it's not a lot of money. I'm not an idiot, but it, like it's it's this, it yeah. So single games are just like it better be good, and yep. even then, mm. that's a tough conversation that I don't want to have anymore. It's it's really tough. Um, I think that model might be shifting a little bit mm-hmm. with these new subscription services coming out. Like I guess we'll see mm-hmm. in the next couple of years. Um, but yeah, so it's back to the getting money from venture is it's, it's really tricky. Now I've, I've heard, um, some success about that in the, the U S, uh, people also getting like, uh, convertible notes and stuff like that from private investors. What, and what is, I don't what know what that, that means. Oh, uh, <laughs> so it's, it's like a, um, it's a basically like a cash investment that, uh, converts, into shares of the company at a later date. Oh, okay. Uh, but I think they can also convert into loans. Uh, we'd looked at the... Good uh, Lord. Yeah, so we'd looked at uh, uh, the, what is it, the Business Development Bank Canada, yeah. BD, BDC, um, here, and they do something similar with convertible notes. But the loan that it, <laughs> it would have converted to was it was a little bit too scary for us. Jeez. Yeah. I, oh. I've, I looked into some of that. I started to, um, I mean, I pitched to a ton of publishers and private investors and stuff like that. And in a lot of cases, we're just waiting to hear back uh, forever. Oh, my favorite ones are the ones that are just like, no. That is great. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Because then you, yeah. you're clear and you can move on. Yeah. I've had some publishers... With, with incredibly clear, just like, this is why, and, and we're done. Yeah, and, exactly. And it's so lovely. And then some people are like, we will look at a game at any phase of development. Please send it over. I was like, all right. And I send it over, and they go, this is too early, so we're going to say no. <laughs> and I was like, what, what just, we just talked about this. Why don't you do this? Um, oh I was like, I, if you, so I started saying, I will send it to you now. But I need you to not give me a permanent no, because I'm going to send you another build later. Um, I've also started looking at Exola, the Exola Funding Club. So, oh yeah, they they do the the pre-sale stuff as well. They they do like their I think their main platform is they can make a a store for you to sell your game on your website, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm thinking about exploring because it kind of interests me. I'm curious. They are very mm-hmm. aggressive. Uh, they are. Um, is this a, a platform? Yeah, it's a platform. But they also have a back-end uh, funding portal to a bank of investors. Mm. And I was like, what the hell? Let's, let's see what we can do. And uh, I have... I, it's kind of neat. It's, it's pretty... I don't know. We'll see, what, we'll see what it turns out to be like. I will be curious <laughs> to hear about that. I will be back on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've definitely got to hear about that. Yeah. So the, is this the way things are going? Is it less venture capitalists... I'm talking grand scheme over the last, you know, 20 years or so. Is it less venture capitalist and more crowdfunding and platforms like you're saying? I mean, games have never really been big for VCs unless it's a clear win, right? right. VCs need like a 5x return on their stuff. And that's oh, not... more than that. Yeah. And a minimum. And that's not what a, an indie game does. Right. That's not what a right. AAA game does. Are, are you going to spend like a seven-figure number with hope of a two to even like, yeah, two to five X return 
Or are you going to spend that same amount on a tech company building a service where you can get a hundred X return? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If things and do so well. You, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the, the risk proposition is, is kind of similar on, yeah. on either side, which is why the, 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 the stuff like the Canada media fund, which is like the loan and then the Ontario creates formerly Ontario media development fund or development corporation. corporation thank you. Um, why that stuff is is like really important for growing companies yeah. uh, here. One thing that we we haven't talked about yet though is like crowdfunding, because that's sort of like the other model. So we've got the publishers and we've got the private investors. Mm-hmm. We've got the media and then, funds and the media funds, like public funds, and then crowd funds. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's worked for some games like. Um, like Faster Than Light was a, one of the more famous ones mm-hmm. where it was kickstarted and in the credits of the game, there's a wall of several thousand contributors yeah. to this game. But that's not the typical story, though. Yeah, well, I mean, like... It used to be. Because when, when did they say, get crowdfunded? That was would be 2014? 20, I was going to say 2013 or 2014. I yeah. started playing it in 2013, I think, or 14. Yeah. So when we were building, like, financial projections for, like, crowdfunds or sales and stuff like that... Um, we basically said we can't use anything before like 2014. Hmm. Um, and it was because there had been sort of like a, like a shift in the market. Like that's like really the discovery problem uh, started happening around there on Steam. And then also the problem with like Kickstarter where there was the Kickstarter disillusionment mm-hmm. and like video games were making a ton of money on early Kickstarter. And then it became um, much more difficult. Uh, so when we were starting out, we were using Steam Spy a lot back when Steam Spy mm. was great. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and you, you'd see like this wall and it was like before 2014, you had like really great sales for like indie games, puzzle games, that sort of thing. And yeah. then it just It just dropped. fell off a cliff. Yeah. yeah. So for our listeners, Steam Spy is a service that lets you see the sales of different games on Steam, which you can't normally see through Steam itself. No. It, yeah, it, it still works. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's got really wide margins of error now. Yeah, um, uh, do, you, do you pay for it? We did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I've seen this trend that you're talking about, that indie games that came out like Factorio and Faster Than Light and things like this were successful. They were finding their audience. Yeah. Games like Fez and things like that. And then all of a sudden... I don't know if it was because there was a flood or if there were other factors, but suddenly indie games made amounts that effectively rounded to zero. Yeah, I mean, it's always more than zero, but like yeah. it's there's too many games, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of like we we've seen a big huge sort of democratization of how to make games, like like more available source engines, right? Like that, that's great. It's the same thing that happened in eighties when the cassette tape was invented mm-hmm. um, or like the, 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 the re-recordable cassette tape rather um, that led to a boom in underground bands and music and stuff like that. The, the historical lesson though, is that they weren't Motley Crue. Like they were acting in response to, to like major label rock and roll. And that's not, necessarily a financially stable environment uh and you look at a band like fugazi that can live on their own now because they've been doing it for 30 years but that's we don't have no one has that experience in indie games right now that's right um 
And I and like the yeah, Kickstarter disillusionment is a big one. I think I personally have backed a game that is canceled. Uh, yeah, I have as well. <laughs> it's so I and like I'm sure many people have, but I was so I was like, what? But I gave you ten dollars. I was so shocked. Um, he gave me a game. Four years later, he gave me a key for his game that he's been working on. That's not the game that I kickstarted. And I was like, well, why? Wow. Why are we doing this? You can finish this thing. And then he just sent an update saying it's done. I'm not, I'm not working on it anymore. Now, as a creative person, uh, I respect the ability to stop working on a thing that's not doing it for you. That's uh, not easy. And all, all credit to him. But no, I think things like, I think for at least the way that I look at things is I don't care to make a hit. I mean, I, I, yes, I want to, obviously, but like, I would rather just be able to keep working. That would be very, very nice mm. at, a, at a level that is comfortable, maybe allows for a little tiny bit of growth for me and my company. But what I want is to, is to maintain my life and, and keep... Right, and like, do what you like doing. Do what I like doing, right? Like, I love, I, I love doing business development. I love doing game design and writing and stuff like that. It's all in there, and I, I love doing it. If we had a hit tomorrow... Yeah, like I, I wouldn't have to. I mean, I just might, I just might stop working entirely. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> but you, I get the sense you're you're talking very similar to like Notch from Minecraft, where he he made games before. Not too similar. And then I he hope. made this one. Yeah. Uh, in some ways. Yeah. In the way that is, it's your passion. Yeah. Because he made games before, then he made this one, and it was popular, and then he left, and yeah. he's making more games. It. I mean, it depends on what your uh, depends on what your definition of success is. And like for me, my definition of success has always been sustainability, lowering my personal stress about work yes. and stuff like that. Like yes. that's what's important to me. So, you know, with stuff like, and you alluded to this and kind of looping back around the subscription services and streaming services, stuff like that, it's more about getting a, a chunk of money that pays for the game. And, you know, I would imagine a little bit of profit. Mm -hmm. And then what can you do with that little bit of profit? We're not, we're not. 10x companies we're we're 1.5x companies but then your next game is just a little bit easier to make yeah uh, so when i think about it if we had a breakout hit i'd probably be doing the same thing i'm doing now except i'd be a lot more chill i was gonna say i'd sleep better <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah which oh one more source of funding hmm. corporate acquisition oh so like we've we've been sort of approached in a very like preliminary manner before and the the question that's been asked is like how big do you want to get mm -hmm. and it's a really good question because when we actually thought about it we were just like hmm not very big yeah mm -hmm. i wouldn't get me i wouldn't get bigger than 20 tops 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 yeah, and if it, if it was like something like that, if we were going to get bigger than that, I'd want to split that into two teams, and maybe it's just like... Oh, man, yeah, one for of that us reason. Go, yeah, one of us go direct something at this one team, or one of us direct something at the other team, and maybe like coordinate shared technology between the two teams. Mm -hmm. Like That could be fun, mm -hmm. but not blowing up to like hundreds of people that... I don't know, that's, that's not where my head's at these yeah. days. We're trying to line up our potential uh, investment in our next project um, because I, you know, I always kind of have to be thinking a moment ahead, and uh, and if we did that, it would let us grow like a little bit, just like enough. 
you know? Just enough to just to have, I would love to have two games that would be great, um, but, but treating them as very, very separate, separate entities. Because you have to, uh, or I have to think about like the, the stagger of like what happens when you finish a game, what are you moving on to, like how do you minimize that kind of lag time. Yep. Um, yeah. I don't remember what we started talking about. We were talking about money. You uh, still haven't even talked about your day-to-day yet. Nice. Uh, I don't know. I just real, talk about... Real, real tight. <laughs> I yeah. talk about, you know... <laughs> what do I do? I, I work, like, Mondays we have our um, we have our Monday meeting. And then Tuesdays I work with our art director at the George Brown Incubator where we have space. Uh, Wednesdays I work on my own. Thursdays I generally... I teach, too, at George Brown. Um, oh, cool. So I... I, I put in about a half day of like play testing and stuff like that. And then Fridays is usually like clean up and admin. That's my, that's my day to day. Nice and mm-hmm. nice and quick. I like to keep things in a, in a one week bundle for me. So all my planning and organization is done at either ends of the week. And then I, I have my, uh, you execute in the middle three days of execution. Yeah. If I can have three solid days of work, that is a absolute miracle. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good week. I did it last week. It felt really good. I want to ask you, I wanted to ask you guys, have you always done video games? No. <laughs> I was going to say you first. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, so, well, actually, for me, it, it was always going to be video games. Nice. So since I was like a kid, I guess it was elementary school, like tell my parents, I'm going to make video games. Mm-hmm. And my parents are pretty smart. So instead of yay yay yaying that, they're just like, okay, how hmm. do you have a hmm. plan? You need to make a plan. And so I made a plan and I structured out all my high school going to like this university, working at these companies. Um, And so that, that was sort of like the, the general, the general plan. Actually, when I finished high school, I was thinking it's like, oh, do I want to go into art, film or programming? Mm. And then I figured if I get into programming, that will probably make it easier to get a job in, in this sector and then keep going with the, this plan that I had. Hmm. Um, and that, that's sort of what made, I guess, like that decision. And then so going through programming, I'm like interning at, uh, I went to Waterloo. They have a really great co-op program there. And so you start off in bank software QA. <laughs> Because you don't, hmm. the game jobs are really in demand. You got to compete with everybody around you. Like yeah. all the people that are like graduating that year are competing for mm-hmm. the same jobs as you just coming into the school. So it was like, what did I do? Bank software, QA. And then I started as like QA as a voice recognition company and then made, they immediately promoted me, which was super nice doing like tools for this voice recognition company. And then I got hired by another voice recognition company after that uh, in a different city. I worked for TELUS for a bit, doing some like database stuff for them. And then finally I got a, uh, a game job at a place in New York City called like Electric Fun Stuff and they made educational games. It's such a good name for a company. It's such a good company. It's oh. like six people and they were, get this, so like ex-Scholastic Children's Television Workshop, Beauty. Lucasfilm. Mm. And what a, what a wonderful mm. like place to work. Yeah. And then from there, uh, went to uh, turn down a job at EA and then went to work at Silicon Knights, 
for, mm. for my, you work at this guy. my last my last co-op. We uh, we actually brought sort of the co-op thing to Silicon Knights. Nice. We we pitched a friend of mine. Uh, we pitched them on it. It's like yeah. you should you should hire us. And then EA, who I'd been trying to get a job with like the entire time I was at university, finally offers me a job, and I'm just like, no, cool. Mm. Oh man, did that backfire? <laughs> <laughs> After I was done school, I needed a job, and I I went to EA, and I'm just like, hey, remember you yeah. offered me that job? And they're just like, yeah, but we don't hire new grads that didn't take the job we offered them. Uh, yeah. Like, and mm. then but I I eventually got in there, and that was like a. That was like a, a whole thing because this is around 2010, mm. I guess. Um, and the industry was sort of like collapsing. And I guess it's, it's still a concern today about being able to break into the games industry. And so at that time, it was even smaller than it is now. And you had to go where the work was. Yeah. So what they'd offered me finally was... Um, like I'd been interviewing at like other companies and the companies I was interviewing at were like shutting down, like not long after I'd interviewed at mm -hmm. them. And then so what EA offered me was like, oh yeah, we'll give you a three month contract in Burnaby. So like Vancouver area yep. with like this sort of low salary and no relocation assistance or whatever. And then I'm just like, yes, Amazing. thank you. I'll, I'll take it. Good. Wow, so you made that work. These jobs that you mentioned before you got into game dev, were these internships during school or they were post-graduation? Uh, they were co-ops. Uh, I think, so what, what I was originally planning to do was post-graduation, I was going to start uh, a company with a couple of friends. Um, and then so while I was waiting for the last person to graduate, I was doing a diploma in fine art. And uh, like my degree was in computer science and then I did the diploma in art to sort of get that out of my system mm -hmm. um, and then working at a bar and then I made uh, one of the early nutrition apps on the iPhone back in 2009 men's health magazine was just like it's the best calorie counting app available for iOS amazing I didn't know anything about business though so I didn't make a lot of money on that yeah <laughs> it, it made it sort of paid for my time at like my co-op salary Good mm. learning experience. Though. I mean, all right. Yeah. Yeah, but that must have made you feel good that you had a win. You know, you were capable of doing that kind of work. Yeah. Um, I can remember going to a bookstore <laughs> to buy the issue of the magazine with that thing in it and sort of uh, like doing a little dance all the way, yeah. all the way home because I'm mm. just like, I've got a thing that people are saying is good on the, That's great. On the iPhone and I'm about to, I'm about to like, make a bunch of money. It's like, no, that is not the way that works. <laughs> well, in 2009, the world was just learning that. Yeah. I should have made a fart app. Yeah. That would have been... And charged 99 cents. I still think that would have been like a year too late for the fart app. <laughs> yeah, 2000, 2009 would have been, yeah, just a little bit late on that. I want to know what, what VR's fart app is going to be. That's what we, that's what we need mm. to know. We've got to get ahead Does of that. Does it have the yeah. critical mass to have a fart app? I mean, not yet. But it will. But it will. It will. Okay. Are you into VR yet? Do I you have a VR setup at home. I am. <laughs> I maybe I'm working on something. Oh, uh, mm. I'm trying to get a quest. I'm trying to get a quest for free. <laughs> um, and if I do, great. I just the the cost of all of it is way too much for me. Like 
I can't do it. If I get anything, it'd be the quest because I don't, because like our home is a, is a very nice home and I don't want to put a bunch of cameras up everywhere and I don't have the space for it. So I can move mm. our coffee table, you know, geofence myself in a little play area. That's great. And then once I get my, my like home theater PC set up, I can get the, the, what do you call it? The Oculus link or whatever. Mm. And then I'm laughing full VR Man, <laughs> magic. Um, not super into it yet. I, I, I have had some good experiences. No, sorry. I shouldn't say I'm not super into it. I am way more excited about it than I, than I was like two years ago. Uh, and I think it's the quest. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Like get rid of the cameras, like inside out tracking, all that stuff. Beautiful. I love it. It's mind blowing. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's me. What about you? Uh, it, it's that upfront cost. Yeah. That's like, the big thing. It's, I'll probably be able to do it next year. And that's just because I've found enough business cases yeah. to really, really upgrade my computer. Um, but if it wasn't for that, like I'm kind of content with the system I've got right now. And it's technically VR capable. Yeah. But Mine's technically VR capable too. Yeah. But I, I, I don't think I would enjoy putting a headset on that thing. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. So for me, video games, uh, I think it also was always the thing. Um, my parents, I don't remember what my parents wanted, wanted to encourage me to do when I was, so I was like 10 when I came up with this desire. Uh, when I was, I think nine, I started playing Mortal Kombat 2 with my good friend Tom Hazelton, who works at Google now. Um, and uh, we wanted to make a video game. And so it just kind of like, impassioned me. I was like, oh, I, I want to I wanna make a video game. And, and I remember a lot of people really hammering that out of me, like just being like, that's, that's very hard. You have mm. to program, you have to art, you have to all this stuff. Uh, you can't do that. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can't do that. Wait, they actually knew what went into a video game? Like that much. Okay. You, have to, mm. you have to know how to program. And I didn't, mm. right? Um, Tom did, but neither of us were like ready to make a game. We just wanted to make right. Mortal Kombat. So That's you were all. talked down from your dream. I was talked down from my dream, uh, as many as many of history's great leaders were. <laughs> um, and uh, and then they got you into literature. Yeah. So I went to hmm. I went to yeah like that was also not a, what my a far parents, more feasible yeah. <laughs> trade. <laughs> that was also not what my parents wanted. There was a big like uh, I got into U of T for my science marks. I was very good at like. Um, chemistry, biology, all that stuff. And uh, so I, I applied for life sciences at U of T. And then once you're in there, you can take whatever you want. So I got in for life sci and I, I was like, I did a generalist year, hated everything. <laughs> I spent $900 to learn that I don't ever want to take an economics class ever again in my life. And I was like, that's, that's money well spent. I don't care. Yeah. And uh, I just about like dropped out. My parents were pushing for like, like they, they're both life side. Like my dad's a chiropractor. My mom's a, a, she was a lab tech then. She runs, like she doesn't run. She's a COO at um, Public Health Ontario now. Um, so there's like a lot of, uh, you should get into the things that we understand, right? And I right. had this very sort of like dramatic blow up with my parents where I didn't want to like go back to school. And I then quietly like found a U of T course calendar by myself. And I was like, I'm going to take intro to film major British writers and the philosophy of human sexuality. Uh, and I was like, why? Because they're weird. They're weird courses. Philosophy of sex was amazing. Uh, major British writers was boring as hell, but whatever. Uh, and the film class. Film class killed it for me. I was like, oh, this, 
this is good. And it got me thinking about the, the thing I fell in love with in film was the sort of like macro mythology of popular media. Like if a lot of people like a movie, it says something about a culture. Um, mm. and, and the idea that like, as an example, like a Western is like an American mythological construct about the, the, the way that you have to break the law to uphold the law is always a tenant of every Western. And it's because they had to leave the British to start their own society, right? Like it's all, it's all part of that. And I just got so fascinated with stories and storytelling. And, and I went deep into um, more film courses and like popular literature. And I started writing more and I always wanted to kind of write to some capacity. And then um, I worked at a bar for a long time uh, writing, published, uh, self-published my own novellas, two of them, ran a publishing company that published two, three other books. And so I had this like experience of, of getting all this stuff out. And then one of my contacts in the publishing world wanted me to like write a book for their new company. So I wrote my first like not, not me novel. Um, and, uh, while all this is happening, I'm also noticing the similarities in what I love about film in games and I'm starting consuming all of this stuff like extra credits and, and uh, I mean zero punctuation at the time too um, but stuff that was about the art and industry of games and I was just like absorbing it constantly I was like I don't know why I like this so much and my Xbox died as, as your 360 was wont to do uh, in, in the year 2012 and, um, and I was like oh maybe I'm done with video games maybe that's it right maybe I don't need to play this anymore I was like 26 and my wife uh, said to me, you know, I think this is like a thing that you do when you're happy. This is a thing that you do when you're sad. Like, this is something that you have. It's your thing. I maybe wouldn't give up on it. And I was like, all right, fine. <laughs> and I went and I got a, a new 360 with five downloadable games, one of which was Alan Wake, made by yeah. Remedy Studios. Yeah, great game. And Alan Wake is about a writer. And you have to collect these pages from a book. And I started reading the pages. And I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. I wonder if anybody gets paid to do this. And then I was like, oh, that's what I should be doing. And then I just went whole ham on, okay, well, how do I do this? What do I do? Uh, and then, again, Jillian, my, my wife, um, said, you know, one of my old high school buddies is a professor at George Brown College. You should meet with him. I met with him. He talked to me about the, the game design program that was there. Um, I applied, I got a uh, game salad, which is a sort of like drag and drop editor for making your own little games uh, as a Mac editor. And I bought an iPad and I got an Apple developer account specifically so I could make three small games for my portfolio interview for this game design program and bring them <laughs> in on an iPad. Cause I thought that would make me look really cool. And I was right. <laughs> I just showed up and I was like, here are the things that I've made. Uh, the first game that I made was uh, it was called Kessel Run because <laughs> I had heard what the Kessel Run was, uh, you know, in the sort of like expanded universe sense. And you had to sort of race around two asteroids that were getting further and further apart. Uh, and it was great. I really want to remake it. Um, and then uh, I got in and I met the rest of 13AM Games, which was my first company there. Um, and we we made a game at a game jam and it had potential and we just went with it. That was it. I remember seeing it at Level Up. Yep. 
So this is Runbo that we're talking this about. This is Runbo. Yeah. So I was touring around level up as being like someone who just started their company. And yeah. I think at the time I was like looking for people yeah. and I, I came across, I think the two games were right next to each other and one was Runbo and I'm like, mechanically, this is the most interesting thing that I'm seeing here today. Yeah. It was a great job. Thanks. And the next to it was a game about elephants with balloons tied to them. Which was uh, artistically your favorite thing. Which was artistically my favorite <laughs> and thing. And they were both mine. <laughs> Good job. Uh, I didn't do the art, obviously. That was Chris Stevens. Um, but yeah, that was it was a, a game where it was called L'Elephant et l'Astronaut. And it was like two <laughs> elephants that were floating <laughs> through title. space. It was like this surrealist French uh, uh, like multiplayer combat game where you had like astronauts that had to, they had swords <laughs> and they were dangling from elephants that were like balloons and someone would control an elephant and someone would control an astronaut and the astronaut had to swing forward and cut the rope on the other astronaut to like... Uh, to take to, out the to take, astronaut. take him out and get a point. Uh, figuring out the rope physics for that was the worst, the <laughs> literal worst. Uh, but thank you, Ultimate Rope Editor, for <laughs> saving my bacon. Um, yeah, and, and we got a we got an award at Level Up. It was great. Yeah, and wow. then you went on, and you, that came out on the was the Wii U. That was a Wii U title. Yep. Yeah. Wow. First, the Wii U's first nine player game, possibly one of the first and only nine player games available, apart from Sega Saturn's Bomberman, which had ten. I don't know why ten. Anyways. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. I never, was this was way back in 2013, if I... If uh, I 2013 is when I started school, so the game came out in 2015. Yep. Wow. So we did a one-year program, and then we were put up by George Brown College for a little bit, uh, for about a year to finish the title, and then we jumped ship and went to um, our own office. We, <laughs> we moved offices, and I personally moved houses uh, the same week that we launched a game. It was the worst week. I can I can possibly like I moved into my new house on the twenty second. We moved into the office on the twentieth, and we launched the game on the twenty seventh of uh, August in twenty fifteen. So that was chaos for you. Yeah, and no one was in the office when we launched because we had guys in. We had guys at uh, PAX. We had four people at PAX. We uh -huh. had um, two people. Nintendo was super supportive of us, um, which is what kind of gave us the the legs to 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 chase this dream down, and. Uh, we had two people at the Nintendo World Store event in um, New York. And then uh, we had two people on a much-needed vacation. <laughs> and then I sat alone in our office, and I hit the... No, I didn't even have to hit it, because it was on... We, I just, like, I just I did an AMA. I drank some scotch with uh, one of our professors from, from George Brown College. He came by, kept me company, wow. and I opened up a bottle of Johnny Walker Green Label, and we celebrated Ooh. Wow. That was nice. Well-deserved, it sounds like. It was. It was a, whew, what a time. <laughs> I, I haven't, like, I haven't experienced that in a while because our next release was uh, Pirate Pop Plus, which is something we published that somebody else made. So the sort of, like, release stress around it was very different. Um, the next thing that I would have that's coming out is uh, Super Crush KO, which I was producer on at Vertex Pop. And that, again... A lot of the release stuff is being handled by somebody else, so I, I kind of just yeah. I kind of just get to reap the rewards. So for as long as we've been around, we have yet to release a commercial game, which is just like that. Yeah, crazy to me. How does that? And I mean this not in a judgment way, but how does that feel? Like garbage, <laughs> just garbage. Now because, I can judge it. Like, yeah, yeah. So so 
we'd been, we, we came out, we were like, oh, we're professional developers. And like I had experienced like quickly developing, iterating and shipping like yeah. a mobile thing before. And then, so when we're going into this thing for the incubator, it's like, oh yeah, no problem. Yeah. Like we, we've got this and just, man, just so many confounding factors piling up. Um, just all kinds of crazy stuff. And then eventually like getting to a point in a game where we just like, we know we have to kill it deep down, mm. but we don't <laughs> because <laughs> of just like, just the emotions in the team. It's like, you don't want to do something like that when everyone's like down, mm. you want to build people back up and be in like a really good state of mind. And then when everyone's like positive and it's like, yeah, that's when you can kill a thing. It's a good point. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a really right. funny. So it's like we'd worked on this, we'd made the project bigger, the the, the henchman game. So we'd uh, we built the game, and then we were at this really weird time where there wasn't a lot of middleware that that did everything we wanted for multiplayer. So then we built like our own cloud backend. Nine months investment in this stuff, like building the game, building the cloud, going through the incubator finally being able to put this thing out and test it and then being like, Oh no, there's like a fatal flaw in this. And we've invested all this time. It's like, it's a, it was a, there was a problem with the, the game flow where it would lead to like cascading player attrition. Mm. Um, and then it's being like, how do we fix this? Okay. If we can fix this, how do we properly monetize what we need to do for fixes? what is this going to cost to actually do this? And wow. then what are the chances that we'll make it back, make it back? Mm -hmm. Because at that point it was like, we were, we were through, we were through the program and we wanted to finish this thing just because we said we were going to do it. Mm -hmm. And we weren't willing to just sort of drop it and move on to something else until it became abundantly clear that no, this is, this is like toast. Hmm. And if we don't, it's going to kill us. And then going from that, trying to figure out what our next thing is going to be, which we had, we had like some ideas and we made like a bunch of prototypes. So we spent like months building prototypes. I even took a, a couple, a few months and like uh, dusted off an old engine that I had and started rebuilding this game engine to do this, this new thing on mobile, Oh wow! which I won't talk about because we might actually go back to hey. it. But it's like, yeah, so I, I had this cross-platform game engine that I built. And, um, and then finally, a fold-apart came along after all these sort of like okay prototypes, yeah. but nothing super compelling. And then that's what uh, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to Unity. I'm going to do a proper sort of like evaluation on Unity at that yeah. time. And Unity got real good all of a sudden. And then we, we went down that road. Amazing. And so we've been on that path for like almost four years now. And then finally, 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 the game is coming out. Yeah. Cool. And your, your game of, of Hold Apart, if I'm not mistaken, is, is, is going to be exclusive to an Apple platform for a short time? Nope. It nope. is going to be exclusive to an Apple platform on mobile for all of eternity. Um, Apple Arcade is where it, the game lives on mobile. It will still be out on consoles. It will still be out on okay. PC. But if you want to play it on mobile, it's, it's Apple. only Apple. Yes. Okay. 
That's that's good because I was worried for a second there. Your trailer still has all the watermarks of PC and Nintendo Switch and all of those. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah, we're still we're still going for that. Are you doing like an Apple TV version as well? Or yeah, nice. Ooh. Your face says maybe this was hard. <laughs> <laughs> so they they so. Apple Arcade supports a wide range yes. of hardware where there might be like orders of magnitude difference in power between like let's say an A8 and an A9 and an A10 chip. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. But um, one of their, their graphics engineers has been really helpful. That's great. Uh, yeah. I love hearing that. That makes me happy. <laughs> um, the next, yeah, so I wanted to ask because we, we've touched on this a little bit. How did you guys create the trailer for your game that's out right now? Or the trailers, as it may be? Uh, in a panic? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so actually, no. We, it was a very involved process. We scripted what we wanted to accomplish. Um, so our teaser came out on August 16th of 2019 for BigCon. We knew what we had available to us in terms of like game footage or rather game, game. Uh, and we knew what we needed to fake. Uh, but I'm not going to tell you what's faked because then, you know, ruins the surprise. Um, and we knew what, you know, wasn't and wasn't necessary for a trailer. So we got a very, we wrote a very tight sort of script for what the trailer can show. And then we wrote up all that content. Um, and like the, there's conversations in there that aren't going to happen in the game, but it gets the, the point of the story across. So right. we went, we actually did like a, like a movie pipeline. We did like, we did script and then we reiterated on script a bit. And then we did um, gameplay capture. We, we polished the hell out of the game first. Like everything that we could fix, weird animation bugs, just general, like just got a lot of stuff cleaned up. Um, and then figure out sort of like what we're missing in terms of visual communication that we don't have features for yet. Like we still don't, we still haven't implemented as of today and who knows it might change in two weeks. The, like the button feedback, like visual image flip on a, on a button to know what button you pressed. Um, mm -hmm. But that's, you know, cause we don't have a demo for a while and that's a lower priority than fixing the rest of our game. Um, but we, we figured out how to fake that on our, video so i gave all of our video stuff and the like the flipped button assets over to a guy and uh my buddy mike meehan who's a brilliant brilliant um filmmaker and he smashed it all together we got our composer to write sort of mc hammer-ish uh tune <laughs> for it at the same time and again constantly just sort of like listening to feedback on the mc hammer thing watching new cuts of the video and then we had a rough cut and then we looked at it and we're like yeah no it's too long and then we just raked a whole bunch of it out and uh, came up with the final. Mm. Yeah. Now, were you making that trailer for a specific reason, like for a specific deadline, or yeah. was it because you said we need a trailer now? No, I, I chose. There's a couple of reasons. Um, one, the psychological, hey, we exist, is kind of really nice for the team. Mm -hmm. um, and we haven't been talking about the game for so long, and there's this solitude that kind of wears on you after a while, I feel, right? Like, um, yeah, something, you know, you can't even show your friends or family the thing that you're doing. Yeah, and, and we're all making, like, stupid gifts and stuff and, like, having a good time making the game. We want to kind of share that. Um, but also, I was heading to PAX. I was going to meet with some publishers and stuff, and I wanted to, I wanted to be like, hey, this is the thing. We're 100% we're making it. It's not going to not happen. So that's why we picked that day. And then we knew that, the week before PAX was going to be screwed. 
and we didn't want to do anything in September because that's when Apple Arcade got announced. So, and we had some sort of inside information that like, don't announce anything in September. And we're like, <laughs> okay, so we have to do this one day, the August 16th. Like we, we actually, back in June, we were like, that's the one day. That's, we have to hit that day. So You've got we a just, clear deadline. We just did our best to hit that day. Wow. So yeah. this really was not just, it was almost, it was very movie production, like you're saying. Yeah. And we did principal was... photography, editing, re-editing, <laughs> focus grouping. Wow. Yeah. Tell me about uh, the trailer for Fold Apart. Oh, so we've had a bunch of them because, as you can imagine, we've been around for a little while. Uh, so in the early days, it was me. <laughs> yeah. It was me trying to find out, like, okay, what do we even have available? What can we show? A lot of the early stuff wasn't for public consumption. Hmm. It was for um, like publishers and stuff like that. And so uh, I guess I was, the, I was the video editor on the team because I had the, the most experience with that sort of thing. So yeah. it was me cutting together trailers. Uh, more recently, uh, we got involved with uh, Evolve PR, which was great because that was a huge load off of me. Um, so we have one trailer out by them, the most recent uh, story trailer. And the way that worked was basically <laughs> them, them coming up with like a, a pitch for a trailer and being like, okay, this is what we want to do. And then us saying, it's like, we are so strapped for resources. <laughs> we can't give you any of that no. stuff. No, let's, th this is a good idea here. Let's do something like this instead. And then they, we gave them the footage. They went with it. They produced something really nice. Um, we've actually finished our launch trailer. So we're way ahead of the game on that one. Um, that time we basically gave them the game and then they gave us back and they're like, we're thinking this and we can make it with this and here's everything. And then, so I guess at, at, for the second trailer, they knew how to work with us. So when they give us back, give this thing back, we're just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. <laughs> great. That's great. And uh, we work with power up audio and they did like a custom track for, for each trailer. And uh, they're, they're wonderful. Um, when they say they're doing the audio on a game, it means that they want to look at everything hmm. that has audio for the game. Because if their name is on there, it's like they're the audio guys. It's they want like every part of that to be a good representation on them, a good that. reflection on them, which is amazing because you know that their hearts in it and hmm. their hearts in like every aspect of the development. Uh, they came on really early. We we really enjoy working with them. Cool. So I guess like shout outs to Power Up Audio and Evolve PR. Look at that. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about uh, game engines and the engines that you've used, the engines that you've created. The popular ones right now are Unity and Unreal. There's a lot of smaller ones like uh, Game Maker. There's open source ones like Godot. Game Godot. I think it's Godot. I think so. Godot? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Thank goodness. All I got is the wiki page. It yeah, did no, not have an audio sample. Like waiting for Godot. It's like, a, it's like an <laughs> engine that's supposed to save you, but it never actually does. Yeah, yeah. It looks, they've got a lot of compelling media, but I'm guessing, I'm guessing you've used it. Uh, I, I, I haven't. I'm just, making a, I'm just making a literary pun. Um, and then there's Construct and there's Game Salad, which, you know, is my, my bread and butter at the beginning of my career. Uh, and whatever you've built. <laughs> so. Yeah. So I guess 
you know, back in the day. Uh, Before like, all these fancy engines well, were available. Unity's been around for a long time. Yeah. Um, it was like you'd look at Unity and maybe you'd look at like Ogre, oh, which wow. was like the, the, the render, uh, open source renderer, stuff like that. Uh, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm I haven't just, heard I'm just anyone. Saying, I'm just saying names. I haven't heard anyone mention Ogre in a very long time. So thank you for that. Yeah. Well, I think we're about the same age. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I think we graduated in the same year. <laughs> um, yeah. What was your question? We're just talking about ogres now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was about game engines, but I want to take a quick tangent. You guys are about the same age. And when did you meet? And you've never worked together, right? You just nope. know each other. Yeah. No, just, um, where did we meet? We met at a thing. Oh, uh, it was one of those Ontario pre-GDC meetups. There it is. Yep. And at, then... At Dominion, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Oh, and yeah. then the it was just like one of those circular groups where you just I just kind of like walk in. I'm like, hello. Stand around and talk and to then, people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And Share then, the same curse as you. And then another time we were at the Ubisoft Indie Series. That one. And yeah, I think it was like neither of us won. And so like... I kind of just like shrugged at Dave and then he put his head on my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Licked our wounds a little bit. Yeah. And that was the bonding moment. Yeah. yeah. So you guys have done game jams together as well? Uh, maybe maybe we're in the same room. I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. Together. I've only I mean, done GGJ and then Toe Jam. I've done Toe Jam a couple of times, but I'm usually just like off on my own somewhere because yeah. I think I'm yeah. going to get a team. And I'm looking forward to the next Toe Jam. Mm-hmm. So for context to our listeners, Toe Jam is a game jam that happens here in Toronto. T.O. Jam, commonly known as Toe Jam. Because it's the grosser work. Yeah. <laughs> What's the other one that you mentioned? Uh, Global Game Jam. So Runbo was built at the Global Game Jam, which happens in January of every year. And it's like, you know, there's a jam that happens all over the world and there are little outposts in Toronto. And then we have our, uh, yeah, just see what comes out of it. So it's another one here. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it happens everywhere, but there's a global game jam in Toronto. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, do you guys, do you still go to game jams? I have not been in a long time. Uh, I'm, I'm, I miss it a lot, and I'm going to go back, hopefully, to the next Toe Jam. I was talking to the organizers recently. Um, I'm, I mean, like, at 13 a.m., we did Global Game Jam that built Rumbo. We did Toe Jam, and then we did another Global Game Jam the following year, and I... Um, we we made something and then it kind of fell apart, and then there was the next toe jam and it was happening in the same building that our office was, and we just worked on Runbo because we were like, well, we have access to our our building all weekend, so I'm just gonna do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for for us, um, I've done toe jam three times. Um, first one was just by myself working on some, I think. Man, it was like some economics game that took place on like this bouncing hex grid sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and then the next one was Henrik and the Angry Axe, which was basically a bunch of people from Lightning Rod uh, seeing if we could make an action game together. And that came together really fast and really well. And we had a lot of fun doing that. That's great. Uh, and then the third one was something where we were ready to make a game and then everybody sort of dropped out mm. last minute and our our animator had drawn a picture of a pig that I thought was kind of cute and I'm just like okay I'm gonna just take this pig and I'm gonna do something with it so I built the pig in 3d 
And then, well, I changed him. I made him a very angry looking pig. And then I was seeing if I could implement jiggle physics yep. on his body. <laughs> so you just basically like slap parts of him and then he'd jiggle around and it didn't turn out to be like related to the game jam at all. <laughs> and I didn't submit it, but I had this, uh, this pig, um, where the physics would just completely break. And, uh, it was hmm. charming. It sounds amazing. It's, it's interesting where you can find inspiration. Yeah. yeah. Jiggle pig. Jigglepig.net coming soon. <laughs> Uh, tell me about, do you guys have any guidelines or principles for checking that you're on the right track? So a lot of the time it's your gut and sometimes you'll ignore it because you don't have like, <laughs> you don't have like objective evidence to support it, but there'll be something gnawing at you inside where you're on the wrong track. Um, mm. but I don't know about right track. Yeah, how do you know if you're on the right track? I playtesting would be the big one. Like, you can you can sort of you know, sum up a lot of your game design questions by figuring out like what what are you trying to evoke? What kind of experience are you trying to evoke mm -hmm. for for your player? And then you can take those to to uh, to playtest to, to right? playtest and and find out if it actually worked. Right. So like, you know, I've I've thought that I was on the right track and been wrong. And that's most of video game making, I find, is just like you, you you think you've got it and then you don't have it and then you change it and then you have something different and, uh, you know, over and over and over again. Um, so I, I like to I like to try to test more often than than not. Now I've been breaking that rule lately while we like cram out the rest of our feature set because I want to finish that and then I can mm -hmm. figure out if it's correct. One of the important things, though, is that you have someone on the team that's up to date on every part of the game and that is able to see the, the game holistically. Um, it's really easy to become siloed in your own part of development mm. and lose perspective of what the entire game is. Uh, so you really need that person on the team who's able to have enough information to be able to do that sort of like gut check or to be able to take the game and run those tests separate from like the, the rest of the development team. Myself and Mark are usually those people, but it becomes very difficult when we're actually like in charge of major parts of production of the game. We're getting better at that. Uh, one of the things, sort of another example of how this can happen too, is we brought the, uh, the art director and the animator to an event recently and they hadn't uh, seen people publicly react to the game oh, ever wow. before. Oh. And both of them were totally shocked. Hmm. And the animator in particular was really like sort of choked up by the end of the weekend hmm. because they didn't expect that kind of response for their work. They're used to working in their tools and building their assets and then being like, okay, we put these here, we see them in this little scene. Hmm. Okay, the animation's working right. This thing seems to feel right. Okay, on to the next thing. Yeah, on to the next thing. I, I had similar reactions to watching people react to our writing. And like, I've skipped the intro to our demo like 30 times a day, you know? I, I don't, I don't want to watch it anymore. And and people were reading every word of it. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, good. That's nice. I like that. Um, that's kind of, that's that's an interesting thing. Yeah. So yeah, so it's important to go back to the the customer, the user's perspective. Yeah, because you you get 
Um, well, it reminds you what you set out to accomplish, right? Yeah, so, exactly. I, I get I get stuck in a in a rut uh, or in a in a pattern, and I need to kind of refresh my memory and remember yeah. what it is that we're building. Yeah, for us, it was sometimes also seeing the occasional user like jamming on a button and it not skipping anything, and us being like, mm, "Yeah, <laughs> we should. We'll yeah. we'll add the skip there." Yeah. What? Actually, this this um, dovetails well with uh, the animator who was kind of surprised by people's reactions. What for you was the most unexpected thing you discovered? The first thing that come to mind comes to mind is kind of like bad discoveries. Uh, so <laughs> yep. like oh, I got sometimes one. I expect certain tools to just work and you think what I'm doing or this aspect of it has been done before and has probably been done like a million times before and you assume that this tool X is just going to function in this way and then you put it on like a different hardware platform or maybe you try to do something slightly different with it that's still within like the constraints of their API and then it just breaks down and it doesn't give you any good feedback. Like you spend just an incredible amount of time trying to figure out what's going wrong with like tools that you've bought as opposed to just developing your game. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the surprises that stick with me just because they create such a large impact on the development process. Because whenever I'm dealing with something like that, I'm not building new tools for my team. I'm not adding new features to the game. I am trying to work around whatever weird error this thing is. Yeah. Yeah. And sorry, go ahead. No, I had a, I had a fun little, little game design weirdness um, that we discovered. Is that is that a fair answer to your question? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, so in our game, you can you walk up to someone and uh, a thought bubble or a, a text bubble appears above their head, and they're saying something to themselves, like "I really want to go to the store." And then the word "store" is highlighted, and there's a button that you can press so that you can jump into that conversation. Hmm. And that's how you talk to people. We don't have a talk button. It's about like contextual reactions to things, or at least making the player read to understand what they're about to jump into. Um, you can also pickpocket people in our game. And when you approach someone, these are two separate systems, obviously. When you approach someone, a little prompt comes up that says, you know, left trigger or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you hold it. And then a bar, like a, like a golf swing kind of mini game appears. And you have to grab the wallet in the right window. Um, those two things happen at the exact same time. The pickpocketing prompt appears and the text bubble appears. But... The pickpocketing prompt tells you what to do before the the contextual text clue appears. So people are looking at the button prompt. It's like, oh, there's something I have to do. And they started pickpocketing people. Mm. Uh, And when we were playtesting the game at EGLX, someone said, I wish I didn't have to pickpocket people before I talked to them. (laughs) And I was like, you don't. Uh What the hell hell are you doing? What are you talking about? And it's just because they, they had this like immediate thing that was like, I have something that you can do and and now i have to like delay the pickpocketing prompt and move it and do mm-hmm. just like i have to I have to sort of like reassess what we're asking the player to do and when and it was something that i didn't anticipate at all because i designed we designed two separate systems the talking system the pickpocketing system and when we're testing content in either we're just looking for the one prompt we're not looking yeah. at it holistically we're not looking at it in terms of like well, what does it mean to be told that you can push a button before there's the button that I want you to push, right? Like, what what does that mean? It was it was a fascinating 
fascinating thing. And if and if you like chaos and you're me, you get the game and you bind both of those things to be the same button. Nice. And see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but, but those little changes, especially in game design, are really critical. Oh yeah. Uh, to to like crafting like a, a player's experience in the game. Literally, like a decision like that could change someone from like really loving the game to just like tolerating the game yeah. if, if that sort of flow doesn't work properly. So being able to take that time to scrutinize all of those little interface decisions is so important. And I think a lot of people sort of, I guess, outside of game development might not really uh, appreciate that. Yeah, it was such a, like, I loved it. I was like, oh, cool. Like, why? Of course that's what they would think. And, yeah. I, and I didn't didn't think about it at all yeah and even like just talking about it now i'm like how are we going to solve this what are we going to do because i can't have it happen too late because then they're not going to do the other thing and it's harder to teach that way and like what's the how do you do it i don't know i i love that it's really it's a very like you know you don't you don't understand why a push door works the way it does until you try to pull on it you know what i mean like that's that's something i will almost every time grab you know, a handle that is shaped so that you grab it with your hand. Yeah, vertical mm -hmm. bar handle. Vertical yeah. bar handle. I will pull it to every me time. every single time. And then I find that it's a push door. I'm like, but why? I don't understand. <laughs> That's not, if, yeah. it's a, if it's a flat rectangle, I will push it every time. I won't grab the flat rectangle and pull it towards me. Uh, and I mean, you know, in the long run, it's not a long time off my life, apart from me looking kind of dumb for half a second. But... Mm -hmm. uh, like, it, like you, you, you figure out how people use the thing because of the way that it's shaped and designed. Right. In uh, one of the Waterloo engineering buildings, there's a door that I don't know if it's purposely designed really badly like that, but it, it shows up on slides mm. in courses about like interfaces. And then people know what this slide is talking about because everyone's gone through that door and Amazing. done that stupid thing. What is, what is the issue with the door? Uh, I think it's got a round handle and it's a push door. Something oh, yeah. like that. Mm. And, oh yeah, awful. And what the heck? It, I, it's been it's been a long time. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's what I do day to day as a full stack dev involves some amount of UI design and user experience design. Mm -hmm. And I've I've really noticed that UX user experience has been more prevalent, at least from what I've seen, because it is so important. And oftentimes we're communicating something that is you know, complex. It's yeah. not a simple mechanic like a push-pull door where if you try one and it doesn't work, you just do the other and you move on. Uh, so user experience design where we grab elements for, that people are used to yeah. and so that they know intuitively how to interact with the system. It's, it's, it's so critical. Affordances. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we brought on a UX consultant to like take a look at our interface, screen flow, and all that stuff. And just watching her play where I haven't, I have not considered a lot of these things we haven't had anybody do it and she's just like ah like she's just like getting frustrated <laughs> with things yeah uh and taking notes taking very very detailed notes uh i was like this is great I i'm sorry that your experience has been hmm. ridiculous i've also designed the game for a controller and she was playing on a keyboard which we which has its own sort of like shifts that you mm -hmm. need to make that's good this sounds like a, an investment that you were really happy you made yes very much i mean we just started but it's gonna be it's gonna be good it's gonna be real good you're talking about the investment in bringing in the UX yeah. designer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just because, like, it's time now, you know? Like, it's, mm -hmm. we're moving past demo phase into... Yeah. Because the, there's also a nice technical investment, too, if you make it early on where you, you structure your, um, 
your user input system to be um, controller agnostic. Hmm. And so that's one of the things that we did early in Fold Apart because we had to teach people how to fold digital paper. So when we were working with uh, the user experience lab at UOIT, yep. and uh, they were really helpful. So in the early days, what I did was I, I built the paper input system so that we could just bolt on a whole bunch of different control schemes and they could just flip between them. And then later on in development, it was just like, oh, okay, well, I've already done the work to, to build this system. It's like, okay, keyboard's really easy now. Touch is really easy now. And it was just being able to have this thing and then be able to adapt it to different platforms very, very quickly because we basically abstracted our input um, to be inside the game. It's just using verbs. And then, and then the, the control system is just interpreting the controls and translating into those verbs in the mm -hmm. game. So you've got a layer in between that isn't just raw input means raw output. Yeah, so there there are some like plugins and stuff you can get where it's just like, oh, well, this is like action button, and that's the level of abstraction. So it's going to be the X button on the PlayStation or the A button yeah. on the Xbox, that sort of thing. But what it is is it's taking it a step further, and it's saying it's like, well, what if these controllers are wildly different? Yeah. This what is, if we're using a completely different input method? Yeah, we're, 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 we've got some like remapping that we need to do, and this is how I've been thinking about it. Like, what is the, what is interaction? What is back? What is inventory? What is like what? What are all these buttons? Um, and uh, especially when it comes to accessibility and controller remapping, it's a nicer way to look at things. It makes it actually easier to do. What are what are your verbs? What are? It's not just like. When I walk up to this thing and push A, do this. It's when I walk up to this thing and push interact, do this. Yeah. So what we ended up with also was, uh, I guess we've got a pretty accessible control scheme now because you can play it with a keyboard and mouse. Mm -hmm. You can play it with a, a gamepad. Uh, you can play it with touch. And then there's a mode where you can play it mouse only. Cool. Mm -hmm. Are you using Rewired? Yes. Yeah, it's great. Yep. This, this goes great to a question that I had, which is about tutorials. How do you guys explain your game without annoying click-through tutorials or pop-ups or things that annoy the user? Uh, we, we annoy the user. You guys just go for it. <laughs> yeah, I annoy the user. That's fine. Yeah. There are certain things you're just, you're not going to get around that. Um, for teaching in a fold apart, what we did was we created a character that would interact with the paper before you did. So you would see, so instead of saying, like, press the right stick to fold the paper, what you'd see is, like the paper is in a folded state and someone flies by it, the paper then unfolds mm -hmm. and you need to refold it into the state it was before mm. so you can gotcha. get across it. And so we, I guess it's, it's like a tutorial chapter. And I think we were successful in that because someone wrote a preview of our game saying that the game was too easy. Um, apparently they didn't realize that they were just playing the tutorial section mm. <laughs> they, they, I, th I think they said something about like there was only one challenging puzzle and everything else was very easy and we're just like yes that's that, great that's yeah. exactly what that was supposed to that's be that's what you want we're, we're teaching mm -hmm. you how to fold digital paper you, yeah. you picked it up completely you got stuck at the last bit where we thought it was where we needed you to get stuck because there's there's a problem too if you if you over tutorialize and you tell someone every single step 
they might not actually learn. They might just be like hitting the prompts yeah, as you're presenting them. Repeating. So what we needed to do was at the, the final step, we needed to set it up in a certain way where it's like, okay, this encompasses what you've learned before. It's kind of leaving you on your own to figure it out. It's giving you the right amount of hint. And then once you get through this, you, are, you have the, the tools that you need to solve puzzles in the rest of the game. And then I guess for, for accessibility reasons and just frustration reasons, the game can also play itself. Mm. Uh, so if you ever get stuck, the hint system, we were trying to think of like all kinds of clever hint systems, like, oh, how do we do this without spoiling it? It's a puzzle game. Yeah. And then eventually we're just like, oh, let's just do the work and have the game play itself. Yeah. Mm. Like, just show me the next step, show me the next step. Okay, I, I think I've got it. I'm gonna do the rest myself. I'm gonna take control back. Yeah, that's great. Our, our, I mean, we've just been working on a demo, so all of our, it's very difficult to make a demo um, because the intro of the game is a lot more story heavy and doesn't get to the the core gameplay. And it's also the level that we're using to build all our features right now. Um, so we have to kind of teach things a lot uh, hmm. to, because it's a new game. So like, like figuring out how to talk to people, like I'm happy with all that. And then we even have like, if you go too long without without doing what we need you to do, like uh, open up your notebook to learn what's in the notebook and that kind of stuff. We, we have a character that is designed for that, um, that, that pops up, the clippy of our game. Mm-hmm. Um, pops up and yells at you. Yeah, pretty much. He's like, he's like your, not your imaginary friend, but he's, uh, his name is Rad Ghost. And he's just a, <laughs> he's just a rad ghost. And, he, uh, and uh, our art director drew him and we're like, yeah, it's going in the game. And we didn't know what for. <laughs> and then we needed a tutorial character. We're like, well, it's Rad Perfect. Ghost. Um, and, and same thing, like if you get caught pickpocketing, Rad Ghost is like, go to the costume shop. Like get oh, on a costume. So like we, we heavy hand a lot of stuff right now because I, I need to make sure that it's, um, I need to make sure people get through that demo. How we teach it in the actual game is probably going to change. Hmm. Yeah, so it's th- probably just going to be a bunch of iteration and testing. Yeah. 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 So this demo, just like the the trailer, is a big tangent of work that might not all stay in the game. I mean, I don't know how much of the mall, it's a mall level, uh, is going to stay in the game. I mean, I wouldn't throw it all out, but I would I would probably rework a ton of it. We've been, like, we have a lot of, we're, we're even just working on another sort of mechanic right now that is sort of the last big feature, the last big gameplay feature that everything will be a combination of these, you know, four or five mechanics that we have. And... Once we get that done, I'm going to add some more content to the game, like to the demo, make a couple little examples of that. But then, uh, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Like in hindsight, what I would have liked to have done was build the whole game in chronological order, because mm-hmm. then you're really focusing on what you need when you need it. And it kind of did something a little different, which I regret. But then you can't make your trailers. Yeah, that's true, right? And this is this is it. Like, what? How do you do this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to the first half of my conversation with Steven and Dave. There's a lot we haven't covered yet. Like, how do you guys deal with bugs? And what's your stance on crunch time? I am taking a bit of time off for the holidays, so expect part two in late January. As always, we close with music from musicians in Toronto. This is Faster by Good Kid.
Faster, faster. This time my mind is.